Welcome to our second season of Shooting the Breeze. This time, we're casting our net wider. We're going to be talking to inspiring athletes, amazing coaches, and behind-the-scenes trailblazers from across the women's basketball landscape. As we start the run-up to another WNBL season and the FIBA Women's World Cup being held right here in Sydney, this is a great time to be a fan of Australian women's basketball. Don't forget to subscribe and be the first to know when we have more Hoops goodness headed your way. And it was really good to hear other people's perspectives uh, from around Australia, what takes a good assistant coach. And it's all about trust and relationship and loyalty and work and being on the same page. And I think Sarah and I've had that. Every so often we have guests on the show who have us choking back the laughs and muting the mic. The dynamic duo of coaching, Sarah Graham and Kristen Veal from the Centre of Excellence, gives us one of those shows. We talk about the COE, the training program, and a whole lot more. Welcome to Shooting the Breeze. Joining me and my co-host Jacinta Govind today, it's Sarah Graham and Kristen Veal. Welcome to the show, guys. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having us, guys. Yep, pleasure. I want to start this off by talking about your playing careers and how you've ended up in your coaching roles. Did you get the idea of wanting to be a coach from the time that you were playing, or was it something that happened, somebody who sort of suggested maybe you'd be well-suited for coaching? How did you get there? Oh, mine's a, mine's a pretty simple one. Uh, no, I had no plans to be a coach whatsoever. In fact, I uh, hated the idea, uh, ended up joining the fire brigade up in Queensland and did that for, for four years and would still be in it had not uh, the um, national coach at the time rang up out of the blue and asked me to come down and assistant coach at the Centre of Excellence, which I took a, a year's leave without pay, came down and did that year assisting Paul Gorris uh, under Brendan Joyce. And, yeah, what's that, seven, eight years later, uh, still doing it and probably loving it more more than I thought I would. Okay. And you, Sarah? Um, yeah, probably pretty similar in terms of I wasn't one of those players who wanted to naturally progress to coaching. Um, in fact, like probably the same as Veely, I was, was trying to do other things and instead of it because I think everyone just thought that's what you should do. But, yeah, and then I guess for me, while I was still playing sort of some things, I was just right place at the right time and, and everything sort of happened from there. I mean, if you look at all the coaches that you've obviously come across over time, is there any one particular coach that kind of stood out a little bit in terms of, you know, when you started coaching, you were thinking, you know, I, I like the way they did this or, you know, I really thought that the way they did that was a great way to coach. Was that, you know, a starting point towards developing your own coaching styles or did you just sort of get into just doing your own thing from the start? I don't know. I think we've been pretty, I, don't, I can't speak for Sarah, but we've been pretty fortunate to progress in probably a, a really kind of succinct format through coaching as opposed to a lot of ex-players they get thrown in the deep end into head coaching roles and it's very much a single swim without really understanding the workload and and what goes into being a head coach as opposed to just just a player so for me no I, I I still think I'm serving my apprenticeship and essentially my coaching degree through the center of excellence but as I've kind of gone through the coaches that I look back and I I respect the most and I try and drag a little bit of their coaching and their mentoring and and their outlook into mine would probably be Phil Brown, uh, who was my AIS coach 20-something years ago. Uh, and then some names around the traps, Damien Cotter, Paul Gorris, 
Brendan Joyce, uh, you know, Graffy had an influence, Karen Dalton had an influence. So lots of coaches, I think, reflectively, um, you're able to kind of pull from. But um, no one at the start to kind of channel off, I think. I think that just naturally evolves as you go. Okay. And, and what about you, Sarah? Was there anyone in particular for you or, again, was it just something that you developed? Um, probably same as Veely, like obviously very early in the piece for me, but you know, when I'm on the court now with the girls and, and in the past in other teams and that, that I've coached, I definitely is a big part of me from a junior rep coach I had, a little bit crazy, very high standards and doesn't tolerate a lot of nonsense. So who's that? You gonna drop names in or uh Donna Ronaldi. Yes. I had her very long time ago now. And yeah, like I guess the same is really pick up little things along along the way and that you can use or not use and pull out when you think you need them. But, yeah, I'd say for me the main one was Donna from junior stuff. I feel like I'm just a carbon copy of her sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously picking up many, many things off Kristen, you know, as you would naturally. Likewise. Yeah. <laughs> All bad, I'm sure. All bad. Yeah. It's, All it's bad quite be. Yeah, it's quite fun. Uh, obviously, Sarah and I played together for a long time um, and we've got a relationship on the court, um, on the playing side, and then obviously a friendship. But as a kind of coaching or as colleagues, it's been a lot of fun. I think Sarah juices me up. She m- makes me a little bit more assertive, a little bit more angry, a little bit more, you know, on the front foot. And I think I mellow her out a little bit, which is significant and hard to do. But I think we bounce off each other really well. Okay, that that's a really interesting comment that, you mellow out Sarah because like because you know like obviously when when I knew Sarah from when she was playing for the Flames she was pretty laid back and mellow yeah yeah off court as a personality yeah but on court oh <laughs> yeah that's true she's a firecracker in a really good way we um at the start of Sarah's tenure as AC at the Centre of Excellence she was obviously still coming like really fresh out of playing like actually still playing as you probably started your official contract with the Centre of Excellence. Um, so to help kind of her transition from from playing to coaching, I didn't want to take that opportunity for her to get on court. So we had her practice when we were low on numbers with the group. And um, I'm not sure if you've seen Sarah in a training environment, but if people aren't up to scratch, she will let them know in no uncertain terms. And it was fantastic. It was so good. You're not going to comment, are you, Sarah? No, it's a nice way of putting it. It's too many swear words. Yeah. I forgot where I was sometimes, let's just say that. Put immersed in it. Yes. <laughs> now, I know there's a point that Jacinta wants to get into about the 98-99 AIS team, but before we get into that, you talked about the way you and Sarah kind of work together. Having had the opportunity to see you guys when you came up to Sydney to play the Hills Hornets. It was really interesting watching the two of you operate together on the court because quite often you'll see a coach-assistant-coach combination and they they work together, but it's not like, you know, really meshing 100%. Whereas watching you two, from my perspective, you really mesh very, very well as a coach-assistant-coach combination. And it seems the way you're working together, it's very, very complementary. Did that take a long time for you guys to develop? Uh, in all honesty, no. I think, and I know BA, Peter Lonigan did a, a piece on assistant coaching maybe at the end of last year, 
And it was really good to hear other people's perspectives uh, from around Australia, what takes a good assistant coach. And it's all about trust and relationship and loyalty and work and being on the same page. And I think Sarah and I've had that since, gosh, how long have we known each other, Sarah? Uh, like 15 years, man, nearly. Not yeah, you're, quite. You're like 18 or 19. Yeah. Yeah. 18. So we've known each other for a long time um, and we've been through some significant experiences up in Logan and then stayed in touch throughout all those years. So I think for us, it was probably more a natural relationship more than anything. And I think it's still evolving. I think, you know, Sarah's really respectful in the way that she kind of puts herself into uh, the coaching environment. So, you know, I think once she builds a little bit more confidence, I'd, you know, I'd love for her to take a little bit more charge and, and even to the point where she could head coach and I could assistant her. I think we've got that balance where we, we could flip and, and do a lot of different things because we're on the same page and we have a healthy respect for each other. It's a really interesting perspective because, like I said, again, from the outside looking in, you guys just seem to complement each other so well that what you're just saying about being able to flip seems like, to me anyway, not a surprise or not something that would be difficult to do. Are you guys getting to the point where you sort of maybe whereas you would have had sort of roles of, okay, this is what the head coach does, this is what the assistant coach does, at the beginning that's just totally gone now or is it swapping as you're going through a season? No, she still gives me all the shit jobs, Paul. Mark, tell the truth about at least this term. What are we doing this term? Yeah, because Kristen's been off elsewhere. Someone's had to steer the ship <laughs> in her absence. So so says, says as head coach this term, I've been given all the shit jobs. <laughs> well, I could think of a few more you could have done, but anyway. But yeah, no, I, I think you probably initially so we could both continue to develop our own coaching I think very much stuck in that head coach assistant coach role as we're starting to get a little bit more comfortable and the kids more so are building relationships with both of us we've got that ability to be a little bit more flexible so we've flipped the the tables and yeah it's a little bit because I'm not there but I think we planned that before we knew I was going to be away with the Opals um, and even before Sarah's going to be away with with the Paras so Yes, fun. It'll be good to be back for the last five weeks and an assistant Sarah uh, in the daily training environment and kind of see what she does as a head coach. I think, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that a lot. What okay. qualifies as a shit job for an assistant coach? Good question, Jacinta. <laughs> um, I personally prefer being an assistant to yeah. than a head coach personally. Sometimes it's this is just a reflection of me as well, though. I sometimes get a bit too anxious in the head coach role where I'm like, I'm not confident if I'm going to make the right decision when it gets, you know, to the stretch of the game. But if I have an, if I'm an assistant coach, I feel more relaxed just to watch everything and recommend. And if the head coach doesn't take my recommendation, then that's on them. Yeah. So what do you each say is a is a shit job of an assistant for an assistant coach? Well, I regret saying this now. <laughs> no, not even talking about game day or game things it's just you know little day-to-day admin things I think it's a part of two once you you don't realize how much and you know this just you don't realize how much goes into coaching and when you're a player and how much just non-interesting stuff goes into coaching like all the admin stuff and the having the liaising pack stuff up and pump balls up and label stuff and order and you know send a, a copious amount of emails I think they're all the stuff that we hate doing. But as a head coach, you can shuffle some of them, especially if they're good at admin and they're very diligent. You can shuffle more of them to (laughs) to your assistant coach, which frees you up to deal with more behavioural stuff. 
Ah, interesting trade-off. Yeah, if you know what's the the trade-off of dealing with the player personalities and uh, managing egos versus managing egos over email. Yeah, which is kind of funny. I, I palm some of that off on Sarah as well. So there's just the stuff and that you kind of have to do to make your program work, which isn't, you know, the the X's and O's all the time. In fact, in a, in a full-time basketball job, it's predominantly the other stuff. So I think, you know, it's fun to be able to share that a little bit with each other. So I'm going to go back to that question that I know Jacinta wanted to ask about 98-99 AIS team. Essentially, Kristen, yeah, you were a part of that iconic team that uh, won the WNBL championship. And for me, like growing up as a player, that watching that grand final and that AIS team kind of made a pathway for me to be like, that's where I want to be when I'm, you know, under 18s or 16s or whatever. But what's it like now having that part of your playing history and now going back to where it all started? Yeah, it's a great question. I think I've had a lot of that since I came back to the Centre of Excellence. For me, it's... Yeah, it's it's a little bit surreal and I think, uh, in short, I'm just really fortunate to have been through this program at all levels. So as a player uh, on the Phil Brown, as an assistant coach and then to come back as a head coach, I really feel very, very blessed to be able to do the full cycle, to have the full experience from all different sides of it, to, to then be able to go ahead and, and coach those kids um, with some kind of perspective. So to be a part of that program, and it's kind of cool that people are still asking about it. I don't know when people are going to stop asking about it because what are we talking now, 2022? Yeah, 22, 22, 20, yeah. 22 yeah. 23 years, yeah. 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 But it's got its place in history. Yeah, and we had the 20-year anniversary a couple of years ago. Um, most people came up to Canberra and we, you know, we kind of celebrated that and Brownie kind of emceed a bit and it was, yeah, it was really cool to see most of the girls there. I think, it, yeah, it's because we were a part of it, we knew how big and, and special it was. But the fact that it's stuck through the, the test of time, um, I think probably speaks to how uh, big it was and how, you know, how much of a platform it was for some of those players to go on to bigger basketball careers and then, you know, even other careers and, and then obviously coaching careers for some of us now. So not just myself, but I think we got Sally out there coaching. Deanna Smith is coaching in WA. They're probably the main ones coaching, I think. Susie's a council member. Some yeah. Big- yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Really yeah. Like, you know, she's doing amazing things. Um, Dee Butler is high up in the police force in Victoria. Gosh, we all know about Lauren Penny. Brahani went to the Olympics, you know, Desiree Smith, like everyone's on doing some pretty amazing things. Sarah, yeah. did you go through the AIS program growing up? No. So what no. was it like for you, you know, not going through that program but still having your own successes, you know, in the WNBL and now as a coach, but what was it like for you entering that program as kind of like an outside looking in kind of thing as a coach? Um, yeah, obviously as a player I didn't go through I just went through the normal Queensland I guess state team pathways but I think you know for me you hear a lot about what's going on at the AIS and the programs and and nothing really surprised me coming in as a coach I had a lot of friends and, and people that came through the program but yeah it was probably everything I expected without going through it myself but yeah definitely as a kid it was something I wanted to you know anyone from home, you know, we all wanted to go to the AIS and be a part of that. But, yeah, interesting not to, you know, obviously Vili's been through it and, and knows the ins and outs of it, but it's an interesting concept. I don't know how I would have gone if I had have been in Canberra in the program for two, three years, whatever it would have been, but interesting. Yeah. 
that would have been interesting, hey? Like, because yeah. when Sarah came down as a coach at, how are we, like 30 almost? Just 30, yeah. I worried that you would struggle living in Canberra, not being by the water. So I wonder as a kid if you would have struggled, but you, yeah. you've been fine. I mean, Canberra's not hard, is it? No, I love Canberra. I think as a kid, like, I was definitely a lot more connected to the beach and, and all that, and I would have struggled as an 18, 19, oh, 18-year-old even, yeah, for sure. So what are some of the big changes between then and now at the Institute other than the name change, Kristen? Oof. Well, they built a new residence, so uh, just across the, the road. So they changed. They've still got the old residence in there um, that they use for camps, but they built a new one which is a little bit more modern, a little bit more apartment style um, with a new dining hall. So that's a big change, you know, and then just – all the mod cons that kind of go with that, like the security and the gym moved to a bigger building. Um, so everything's kind of gotten bigger and a little bit more modern as you'd expect. But the biggest, absolute biggest change is the number of sports that are in there. They just don't have the flurry of sports they had back in the early noughties and prior to that when, when the AIS did open and you had like Olympians and, you know, soccer programs and netball programs, volleyball pro- like you had everyone in there. Like at that final just into that you're talking about, you can still look back at some of the footage and you've got Michael Klim in the um, crowd talking to the commentators in breaks. you got Kowalski in there. Uh, you had a, a number of the gymnasts that used to come out and support us. It was, yeah, you know, track and, track and field. Um, so it just doesn't have that anymore because I think everyone's decentralised post-2000. So it'll be really interesting to see what, what the future of the AAS kind of holds, whether it becomes more of a sports science place, whether it you know, they try and get it back to its previous glory. I'm not too sure, but that's probably the significant change. We're the biggest client with about 36 athletes. Wow. So I suppose that means that for the current crop of players, their experience is going to be very different to your experience at the AIS. Yeah, I mean, they're still teenagers. They still try and do the same. Like teenagers will be teenagers, will be teenagers for forever. Um, So they'll tr- still try and you know, test the boundaries and ask the same questions and learn the same lessons, both on and off the court and being away from home. What's changed for them is is kind of society and and what they have to deal with in social media and, you know, exposure and, you know, the demands and all those those kind of things, which they'd have to deal with if they were at home. So I think that's what changes the experience for them a lot is that they've got, just got so much more going on in their brains. So how they experience that based on that is going to be very different to, to what we had, which was very much just go to school, sleep, eat, go to training, do it again. Based off all of that, do you sort of look at the your program from week to week and try and particularly with social media because let's face it social media can be a bit of a cesspit do you try to keep your team out of that as much as possible by keeping them occupied through the week with a fairly tight program or how do you try and approach that uh with everything it's always a balance right so uh education around social media is probably the biggest key and then just uh, you know constant communication and delivery around the other things that they need to be doing to to achieve their goals essentially so we don't try and distract them you know managing their phones and managing social media and and all those things is going to be a part of their life moving forward so we don't want to pretend like it's not there and then have them kind of just be smacked in their faces when they leave so just communication education balance I think the biggest thing that we're trying to step into now which is a brave new world because we've been I know I've been guilty of this with young people who are like, well, they're their phones. We can't really dictate what they do with their phones. And if there's an emergency, they'll need that to call someone. 
I think we're starting to step into being a little bit braver in terms of understanding the impact of phones and social media on young people, how it's essentially a drug and contributing to high mental health rates. So we've started to put some bans on mobile phones around training times, you know, even on the weekends. Can you put it away for half an hour and have a conversation with somebody? Uh, So we're starting to investigate and and explore a little bit more around that that space for our young ones just to to help them moving forward. You got a really talented group in that team. Do you find that some of those players are really getting an unwarranted amount of attention? You know, whether it be positive or negative, but like do you think that the amount of attention they can get from social media really isn't helping them in what they're trying to achieve at uh, AIS? I'm not a big social media person. Like I've got it, right, and I'll use it to kind of zone out, but I'm not a big fan of it. I don't really see the the hype in it, but I know the kids see it as – like we had a kid – that um left a couple of years ago and she f- didn't finish school and I think her plan was to do some kind of post year 12 study in an area I can't remember but then also just to hone her I'm not even quite sure what you call it your social media skills is that like influencing what's that influencing yeah stuff like that you know an influencer okay great she was going to pick up her ability to make it. Yeah, so then I guess it's an influencer, isn't it? Because she's going to make money. I don't know. I'm showing my age. I don't know. How do they make money off of it? Being an influencer? I don't know. I don't know. I don't we know, can't but... answer that question. Paul. Look, if you figure it out, more than happy to let let me know. <laughs> I think in short, they haven't like this social media space makes them feel like they're either superstars or nothing. And the fact of the matter is they're right bang in the middle. They're not superstars and they're not nothing, right? They're, they're babies that haven't really lived and really achieved much yet, but they're being stretched to either one of these extremes, which is not true and not reality, but that, that's what they have to grapple with. To me, that, that sounds like as coaches, that would be a monstrous challenge for you because it's kind of like they'd be up and down all over the shop based off what sort of feedback they're seeing on social media, what people are saying and, and all the rest of it, which, look, to be fair on them, they're young, they're away from home, they're schooling, they're training, there's expectations on them, whether it be from them, themselves or from someone else. And then on top of that, you've got to throw into the mix, you know, all these people who have an opinion. Yeah, it's horrible. I feel for them. I mean, I was speaking to a psych the other day and they said the average attention span of a of a young person has dropped to like 3.6 seconds, which is crazy. So, yeah, I, I don't know how they're surviving and I don't think they are surviving. Well, I think they're surviving. I don't know if they're flourishing. It's a monstrous task, but anywhere that we can kind of impact that and, and take away their their need, their addiction to, to their devices and that instant gratification, I think is an important part of our job, especially at the Centre of Excellence and the welfare of these kids, for sure. Again, looking at it from the outside, to me, it seems like you've got so much that goes on with the team, with the routines at the AIS and the pathways that these players have. What roles do you guys fill for your team in relation to guidance on the pathways that are available to them? Do you want to ask that one, Sis? I guess you're talking like US college and what's next. Yeah, yeah, so whether, yeah, whether it be college or whether it be, you know, follow the pathway through to WNBL or whatever the options might be. Cuz like I said, you've got a talented group of kids there who've got all these options in front of them. How do you guide them 
because you'll get to know each individual over time and you'll get an idea of what would suit. So how do you deal with that challenge? I think generally it's just what they really want to do. And I know, you know, obviously college is such a popular choice for most young kids coming through the pathway now. For us, it's just, I guess, supporting them in their decision-making and, you know, talking to them about what they want to do, where do they, what do they really want to do? Is that what your parents want you to do? Or from my time here and they generally get to the right, not the right answer, but what they want to do on their own with us sort of just in the background, um, more so really providing the right tips and pointers. But I think us, it's it's really just supporting them in their decision-making and obviously their parents, they've got a, a lot of people talking to them and saying to them, this is what they should do. You know, never have I ever heard really say to them what she thinks they should do it's always been a conversation with them talking and eventually they get to what they want to do I think if they're about to make a catastrophic mistake I'm sure we'd jump in but yeah I think it's just really getting them to make the decision for themselves and figuring out what they actually want to do not what the hundred other people want to want them to do or think they should do sorry about the dings is that you or me? I don't, I it's me. I don't, okay. know, I don't know how to turn it off on my laptop. Billy's going to show me when she gets back. <laughs> Can we screen share on this or no? No. no. Okay, so okay. I was going to say one of the things that we had down is one of the biggest surprises that you've got in your role, and obviously there's the technical issues happen to be it. Clearly. I'm trying to figure it out now. She's a quick learner. Before we get into the second half of the podcast, where we talk about the globetrotting Sarah and Kristen have been doing with the Tokyo Paralympics, the FIBA Under-19 Women's World Cup, and the FIBA Asia Women's World Cup, we just want to remind you to like and subscribe to the podcast so you can be the first to know when new content drops. There's a lot of different things I want to ask about. Let's talk about some of the, the international stuff that you've been doing recently, both of you. You know, Para, Asia Cup, under-19s. I look at that sort of a schedule and I'm thinking to myself, wow, how do you guys manage to fit all this in? Plus, stay on top of what you got to do with AIS. Run us through it. Because like, it seems like you're getting pulled in lots of different directions. How do you manage it to keep it you know, manageable? Me or you? You. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it is a good question. Funnily enough and... Um, lucky enough, this is the only year that it's been like this. BA have been really, really supportive of some additional opportunities. I applied for the 19s job, AC job, pre-COVID, and then everything got wiped off the national calendar because of COVID for the last year and a half. So we didn't have any camps. We didn't have any Oceania or Asia qualifiers. Uh, we went straight into World Cup on the back of, I think, two camps plus a pre-departure camp. So that was always on the cards in the assistant coaching role. That was something that was manageable because it was aligned with our age group of athletes at the COE. Um, but then what kind of transpired this year was opportunities for Sarah to go to the Paralympics, and she can talk a little bit more about that. And then late, so I was in quarantine for the 19s after Hungary. I was asked um, if I'd be willing to do – it's kind of pitched that way. Would I be willing to do a second quarantine and go to Jordan to – assistant coach for the Opals with Paul Goris. So that opportunity came late. So it was never really on the schedule, but BA being so supportive of us getting some really fantastic opportunities, especially in this current climate where no one's traveling and no one's playing any international competition was awesome. That was one. So they were able to support us through the backside with 
you know, bodies on the ground. I think there was what, maybe a two and a half, three week period where both Sarah and I weren't there. So that was for me a little bit uncomfortable and I think a bit stressful for both of us. But outside of that three weeks, either Sarah was on deck, I was on deck, and then Sarah's been on deck again. So I think at this time of year, given there's no competition because Waratah ended up having to fold due to COVID, we we're kind of able to manage it on our own with some support from, you know, the staff at the COE. But it was just that three week opportunity after that three-week block where we had to rely on other people who were fantastic and, you know, they came to the party. And again, I think that all would have been okay had we not gone into lockdown. ACT's first lockdown, whilst both Sarah and I are gallivanting around the world um, (laughs) with six, five new athletes in, and they were the only five athletes in our program site because everyone else was with the 19. So it couldn't have been a more perfect storm for those kids. And I, I know it was disruptive and I know they're, suffering the effects a little bit, but they have charged through and they couldn't be, you know, a little bit more tougher for the experience. So, yeah, really fortunate, but this is an anomaly this year. Um, what do you want to add to that, Sis? Yeah, no, nothing different. I think, like really said, BA and, and the staff at the COE were extremely supportive and um, I think we were pretty lucky to be able to do it. But, yeah, like the year that it was, it was an anomaly. And just the kids, I think, were... Yeah, probably. I think we went into lockdown maybe the day before I left. So I was sort of on the plane and just waving goodbye to Canberra (laughs) and all the issues I was leaving here. But yeah, I think the kids were awesome and they just sort of took it on as a little challenge and just feel like they just bounced around with the substitute teachers. And yeah, we're really lucky to have people in place to support us. So just in that two, three week block where both of us weren't here. Sarah, staying with you for a second, how did you find that Paralympic campaign. I mean, we were watching it here. We were also on with uh, Jenna Misens and Darren Alley talking about the Paralympic campaign. And look, from our perspective, it seemed to us that from the start to the finish, there was improvements across the team in terms of the performance. But from your point of view, how did you find that whole campaign and, and going to Tokyo and the competition? Yeah, obviously being... an Olympics or Paralympics with COVID it was a very different experience but for me I I didn't know anything different like once in a lifetime really just down to you know being at a game you're in an Australian uniform at a Paralympics it was just you sort of kick yourself when you're on the bench and then even just coming back to the village and and being around the Australian building and yeah it was just an amazing it's hard to describe but just an amazing experience and probably a very unique one uh, and one that I was extremely lucky on a few fronts to to even get to be a part of and, and go to. So, yeah, something I'll never forget for sure. Because it was Darren, wasn't it, in the end? Like, Dee couldn't go because of vaccination. Yeah, Darren, still- Jana, Jana couldn't go. Uh, her husband, Grant, was going with the men's team, so they had two kids at home. So, yeah, I was just really fortunate to even get the call up. Lee and I, Lee Gooding and I are still sort of joke that I was just passing him by at a camp when Billy and I were going home one night and he sort of said, hey, you want to go to Tokyo? And I said, yeah, of course, I'll see you there. <laughs> Next thing, I'm on the plane and, yeah, it was pretty surreal. Yeah, it was just crazy. And to add a little bit of context, I think Sarah's being a little bit humble. Lee just didn't pick her out of, you know, a lineup to go <laughs> to to the Olympics. She's worked in wheelchair basketball for for how long with, you know, New South Wales. So you've been a part of it and you've obviously, you know, earned your stripes in that discipline and obviously well-respected in the in the wheelchair form of the game. Thanks, mate. It's very kind. 
Yeah, you left that part out. Mm. <laughs> That's what you're for. Do you take, Sarah, any like any significant lessons from going to the Paralympics back to the COE to share with your athletes in Canberra? Well, there's many. I just think, like, for me being away with a national team, it's just it just shows that when you're away to championships or to paras, whatever it is, it's just that the daily work on a, you know, on a daily basis is just so important. Like there's no, you can't have any days off. Yeah. For like, you just never know what's going to happen. Like for us, we had, I think two camps canceled in the lead up. So it's just really whatever you're doing in your home state or in your daily training environment is so important because you just don't know now that we've experienced something like COVID, you're not going to get that seven days or those those two five-day camps in the lead-up, then hopefully you've done the work, you know what I mean? So for me it's just like so important that you're working on it every single day because in this, like now, we just don't know what's going to happen. Well, hopefully we have more of an idea now that things are picking up, but who knows? These last two years have told us to never relax. <laughs> no, if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's such a good – we need to use that. We've got a kid that super reflects that. I'm not sure if you have you probably have Jade Melbourne. I knew you were going to say that, oh, yeah. actually. Yes, yeah. Anissa said, we've got a kid like that. I'm like, I bet you it's Jade Melbourne. But I love that saying because we basically, you know, the, the easiest way to describe Jade is she's always ready, like always ready. The Opals were in camp. They had their last selection camp in uh, – I can't remember when, but at the COE. They only had half because the rest of them were overseas playing in the WNBA. And Kayla Francis got tonsillitis, so they only had nine players for this camp. And I think Cheryl phoned and Goz phoned, and they're like, okay, do you have any players that can come in, preferably a big? And everyone in our program was sick, and they're like, oh, no, we don't want to come in and risk making the Opals sick. And Jade was not sick. Well, she was on the brink of being sick, but she wasn't sick. And she was ready. And so she got to train with the Opals for the last half of that camp. And she's just always ready. Always says yes, always does the work, is always ready. So great, yeah, great saying. I love it. I look, to be honest, I stole that from RuPaul's Drag Race. So I can't claim that was any <laughs> words of wisdom from a coach that has passed down to me. It was my favourite reality show. <laughs> you can reframe it. So grab the quote, put Jade Melbourne on a poster, yeah. put some some drag makeup and some some high heels on her and some long hair. It's a great idea. I'll come up with something, I'm sure. Because she definitely um, kind of demonstrated that attitude at Asia Cup in Jordan. Like, I mean, she was uh, really energetic on the bench. You could tell that she was just loving being there. And she would go on for, like, you know, what, 30 seconds, do her bit, shoot some threes, hype everyone up. And it, it was like she'd have fresh legs. It could be like the bottom of the fourth quarter and she was ready. Yeah. She's made different, that kid, and she's she's got a passion for it. She doesn't overthink it. She doesn't overthink her abilities. Yeah, she's a good prototype. And if we can bottle a little bit of her moving forward to share with, with the new kids coming in, I think we'll be in a really good position. Yeah, she's um she's a cracker, that's for sure. Yeah, you could you could tell just by watching her. Occasionally, the the camera would cut across to her on the bench, and she was always revved up. When the camera was there, because you know they didn't know when the camera was going to cut to her, and she was revved up. She was always one hundred and ten percent behind the team. You just can't you can't buy enthusiasm like that. Oh no, you can't. No, nah, she's got that in spades. Even to the point we had the you know because the refing wasn't you know fantastic over there. It's a very physical tournament um, in Asia. So I've never heard a first-time rookie just get into the refs like Jade did. And so I think everyone kind of got 
a little bit of a hey kind of let's uh let's turn it down a little bit and I think you know she was great after that but like she just doesn't care she's like my mates are getting hurt you know it's unfair I'm I'm in I'm in like let me Adam coach um yeah she was great so will she so, stay in the program or has she graduated she has graduated like love the kid to death but she's ready to she got the most she this towel drive she's got the most out of this program um she got a really fortunate taste of WNBL last year because Canberra needed a player um so she got to do the hub she proved herself in that and then she decided to I think she was signed I think had a, yeah a verbal commit for Arizona which is a big school they obviously yeah. um went to the big dance and dropped it to Stanford so she decided to give up that opportunity to go pro straight away and I uh, you know, I think if there's a kid that can do that um, and make an impact, I think it's it's Jade. So yeah, she's she's graduated and we'll head back to Canberra and start preseason with the Caps. I'd like to get your view and your experience with the under 19s and at, at Asia Cup, particularly like with Asia Cup, it was interesting because it was you and Gory going mm. going there together, which is a, a team that's worked together before. How'd you find that experience? on a world stage. Yeah, I had to check myself a few times. I think I had this conversation with somebody else is it was so familiar and so comfortable because Goz and I have done this so many times. We've done it in the COE program, we've done it at the Capitals, uh, and now we did it with the Opals. So it's something that, you know, we work well together. We know how each other works. We know what each other needs. Uh, that sometimes I had to check and go, ah, oh, we're with the Opals. Pinch ourselves a little bit and, and make sure that, you know, we're dotting the I's twice and crossing the T's twice, which probably gave it the illusion that it was a little bit more comfortable than you would expect for a national an international tournament to be. But the other thing that really helped with that, the, the group of kids that we had in nine debutant Opals, uh, Sammy Whitcomb, who's just... Uh, a professional and, and such a great team person, not to mention her on-court talent. You know, never been a part of a group that from 1 to 12 is all about each other uh, on and off the court. And with limited preparation, because a lot of kids were in lockdown, um, what they were able to achieve through that tournament is a testament to that that connectivity as a group because there's no way they should have been able to uh, survive that um, obviously the physio did a great job but survived that tournament with that preparation and then to do as well as they did without each other so I think you know that was significant I think really makes us have to reflect again on on how important our culture is and continue to, to work on on establishing our culture as a national program uh, and you're probably not too dissimilar from a 19s program as well a lot younger a lot more inexperienced um, I think once they got over there there was a few deers and headlights because some of these kids have never played internationally Jade Melbourne was the only one that had played internationally before at an under 17s and you know, she played minimal minutes as a bench player. So everyone else, this was a fresh experience for them. So throughout the tournament, there was a lot of tears, not tears because they were upset, but tears because I think there was just so much going on and they didn't get it. They didn't understand why the refs were calling those things, why there was subbing like that, why those players were hitting them, why those shots weren't going in, you know, all those kind of different things. But again, the ability as a group to be resilient and stay together and handle a a bubble-like situation, an international tournament, and get better is a testament to the culture, um, again, as Australian basketball teams, I think, uh, that we can hang our hat on. I'm not sure. Did that answer your question? It brought up something else for me, which is both of you have got this really interesting insight now into the generation of players that's coming up that we're going to be seeing in the WNBL over the next few years, that we're going to be seeing playing, you know, whether it be in college, WNBA, potentially suiting up for the Opals. What do you guys think in terms of the talent coming through? 
How does women's basketball for Australia look? Yeah, it's a good point. I'll just go short and I'll let Sarah finish it off. The first kids that I was at the COE as an assistant coach with are starting to come back from college now, like Alex Sharp. Horvat is taking a fifth year at UCLA. Maylee, obviously, you know, she's starting to come to fruition, uh, not just in the WBL space, but 3x3. So they're all starting to come through now. So there's a whole spate of athletes behind them that are going to be working through college or WBL programs, like, you know, your Rochies and your Jazz Shelleys and Isabel Bournes and all those guys that are going to come back and through. So we haven't really thought about, I'm really interested to see how they come back and they impact the Australian landscape. But projecting and with the talent we've seen come through over the, over the last few years and the talent we're recruiting, basketball's in a really, we've got some talent, like some genuine basketballers and some genuine athletes. I think the one thing that we are constantly looking for is size. But we've got a, a good couple of six four, six five kids in at the moment. We've seen there's a couple of six five kids in the under sixteens age group, so we're tracking them pretty heavily. But yeah, the talent coming through, yeah, it's still all there. We look really good for the future. We've just got to find a way to continue to build it um, and build them as good people into that culture, like we're talking about. I'm not sure if you want to add anything to that, Sarah. No, I think you answered that perfectly. Thanks, mate. <laughs> Well done. It was interesting you've identified that one of our biggest issues is is finding bigs. Is this something that we need to maybe, you know, cast our talent identification a bit wider into other areas where you're not necessarily just looking at basketball, but maybe starting to look into those other sports where height's important? I think BA are acutely aware of it. I think the states are, are very aware of it. I think kids just have, and we want to enter, it's kind of that double-edged sword. Um, it's really important for kids to cross-train and play multiple sports growing up. It actually helps their athletic and their, their skill development in whatever sport that they end up being in. On the other side of it, you know, they've got multiple things to choose from. I was lucky enough to get on court with the Diamonds a couple of years back, and I'll tell you where all the six five, six sixes are. They're in Nepal, right? So... I think we know where they are. I think it's attracting them to a really difficult sport at a young age for bigs because guards don't want to give it to the bigs because as soon as the bigs get it, all five little people run around and try and take it off the bigs. So it's a really difficult sport for a young big to, to get any success with and without that instant gratification of this culture that we've got at the moment, to get them to stay in the sport really takes some nurturing more than identification, I think. And you mentioned netball. Obviously, there's, there's a lot of height in netball. Is there some way that you know basketball could be more attractive to people who would potentially choose netball because of the opportunity to be able to represent Australia? I mean, we've always tried to pitch it as that, right? It's you know you can go to the Olympics. I think netball and basketball at a young age uh, required different things, and I think that'll come down to personality and drive of the individual athlete. So. We could say to an athlete, come across because you could play for the Olympics, but if they have to go into training every day and, you know, they're not getting the ball and every time they get the ball, somebody takes it off them and they get hit and, you know, it's really hard to put the ball in the hole and people just, they can't keep anyone in front of them. Just that internal success that they're feeling, it kind of outweighs the promise of going to an Olympics, which seems so far, so far off. So it's reward and success on the daily that is probably more important to most, the majority. You'll get that one kid that wants to play for Australia since the day they were born, Lauren Jackson, right? She knew. She grew up in it, but she's not the norm. You know, she's the outlier. So it's how do we create success for them on a daily basis, not a possible success 20 years in the in the making. I get what you're saying 100%, but, yeah, I, I don't think kids will buy into it as much as what they can get now. 
it's more important to them what's happening now for most of them. Okay. So from all three of you, what are your ideas? We've all got ideas on how it, what we could do. Let's get them out on the table. I mean, I know what the states are doing. I think from what we can control in ours is we have to identify them and we have to get them into the program and we have to put them in an environment where we can nurture them. And we've got the ability to do that because we have them all year round in a residential program. So we've got Ella Gordon in the moment. We've got Isla Juffman's in at the moment. Uh, we're looking at a couple of big kids maybe for next year from either WA or Victoria or, or New South Wales. So for us, it's getting them in and building that confidence and nurturing them to then start seeing and realising the dream of playing for Australia on a state level, on a participation level. I'm not too sure. Okay. Sarah? Yeah, I think it's interesting hearing Vili talk about that. I think that is a huge thing, giving them that taste of success because it is really difficult. I don't know anything about it being difficult as a tall player, but obviously. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it, giving them an environment that's enjoyable and and where they can feel like they're getting better. I know as a kid and it, it takes a long time sometimes and it can be disheartening. I think for me it's, it is down to personalities. So you, you could have told me, at a young age that I could go to the Olympics and do everything playing netball and I still wouldn't have done it. Basketball was it for me and netball was you couldn't have paid me enough. You know, dangling the carrot or whatever, it wouldn't have worked. So I don't know. I think it's an interesting – netball obviously does a better job of it than us, I think, at the moment in certain – I think we do a better job at times, but whether it's a personality thing or it is, like Vili was saying, is – figure out an environment or figure out a way to give them that daily success and feel like, like they're getting better or, you know, those improvements are happening. But I think get them enjoying the game from a young age. Okay. And now I'm going to throw it over to you, Jacinta. I know you've got some ideas, so uh, we're getting them on the table. Mine <laughs> kind of like goes even uh, before all of that. It's making basketball more accessible for more people. Even if I just look at the Central Coast because I'm – born and bred Central Coast, still here now. Not to say I didn't do other things as well, but back again. Um, the Central Coast geographically is a really big area. Population density is getting higher and higher, you know, considered a commuting part of Sydney, um, greater Sydney, whatever. But you can see basketball is very centralised to one area of the coast. It has potential to be spread across greater venues on the coast, um, so many more schools, like it could be infiltrated across the coast in a lot of different ways. And I think then if we cast our net wider and perhaps invest in the grassroots more and build a better kind of talent pool, perhaps that's the way that we're going to miss out on kids that may have never gotten the opportunity to even know what basketball was or even have a go at basketball. Because for me growing up, like I had an older brother who was in the NBA, part of the 90s. So I knew of basketball, but I knew of NBA basketball. And then the Terrigal Stadium opened across the road at the, around the same time. And then I had a guy named Sean Sykes who was the American import for the Cavaliers and he came and did learn to play at our school. And that's how we were hooked because we had like a local import player doing learn to play at school the stadium was across the road from my house. Like how much more accessible could you make it? And I just wonder if we could do that across such a dense location like the Central Coast, if that could potentially get a couple more people interested. But also got to make basketball affordable. But Basketball is an expensive yeah. sport for a family. So I think that would 
you know, when I talk to some of my friends with kids, they uh, and they say we want to play basketball, but it's expensive and little kickers or whatever it is, or the one that the AFL runs for kids that want to learn how to play at AFL is like a hundred bucks for a whole season, and that's it. So just things like that, I think for me. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's the crux, isn't? It? I think Paul Roos talks about it being a pyramid. So down here. We need to have lots and lots and lots and lots of people and access. And you're right, it's it's a money thing. Like we need more venues. And and just, I mean, Victoria doing a great job. They find these old abandoned warehouses and they just bare bones, put some good courts and some good rings in there. They don't worry about heating and, and cooling. You just deal with it, right? Um, but good courts and, and rings and, and just make more courts so more people can play. I think, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a really good point. Because that's, I think, why, you know, soccer is the world game because you just need a ball and a space and off you go yeah Um, but yeah even I know on the central coast here I know that you know some of the local clubs want to get into the schools and do the learn to play but it's the the school's not kind of calling them back so you're missing opportunity to introduce a new sport to other kids and perhaps get them to cross train like you're saying before with basketball with their odds tag or something like that yeah, the beautiful thing about having a smaller, a shortened version of the game in 3x3 is it's a cheaper version. It's an indoor-outdoor version. The courts are cost a, the outlay to, to put them down is a lot less. If we could just put, like if we can't put new venues in, because I know they cost you know hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars to put these great Butte stadiums in, just spatter these 3x3 courts around everywhere. People will go and play. They'll go and play. As long as it's not that that asphalt that's going to damage basketballs, people are going to go play. So utilise what we have to make it more accessible. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Jacinta. Okay. And related to that, the COE has a relationship with the the NBA Global Academy. How does it work with women's basketball particularly? Or does it not? The We can't mirror the programs because what they're trying to achieve is very different. So the, the premise of the NBA Global Academy, apart from developing amazing talent around the world and providing opportunities for, for kids in countries that don't have the same kind of privileges that we do in Australia, they're trying to get kids from big nations into the NBA. So the revenue or the the marketing or the kickback for a Chinese athlete in the NBA or an Indian athlete in the NBA is phenomenal so you can see the business side of it right you're not going to get the same kind of kickback on the women's side so to mirror that and have another 12 female athletes from all across the world to get them into the WNBA is not going to produce the same kind of revenue so what they have done is um, they support an additional scholarship for the COE so we now carry 13 scholarships, one funded by the NBA. Uh, And then through that, you know, we have good connections with the NBA Women's Global Academy, um, which is predominantly camp-based. So you've got Basketball Without Borders, you know, the Women's Academy runs online during the pandemic. um, And then they'll have like all-star weekends and and where, you know, athletes are nominated from different countries to, to go and participate in those events. So there is connection. There is a women's side. The NBA are very aware of supporting and developing the women's game it's just done in a different kind of format to the men okay it makes me curious because you know there's these all these opportunities because there's a lot of talent out there there's a lot of so many opportunities to try and develop women's basketball and the athletes that play how do we turn around and try and get greater engagement uh, particularly commercial engagement because the reality is we need to get more commercial engagement to be able to try and get the sport to grow you see this, the obstacles to it pretty much. You, you would be seeing it on a daily basis. 
what do you think we could do to be able to make the sport more attractive in a, in a commercial fashion? I do know Basketball Australia are going through an overhaul at the moment with a high focus on sponsorship and marketing. So my thing is, I don't know the solution to that. If I did, I, I'd be working in that department and not as a coach. I know that we have an amazing product in terms of basketball on all different levels, You know, both genders, different athletes, um, different formats of the game with our able bods and, and paras. You know, we have a great product. That's why I'm still a part of um, basketball and, and Basketball Australia. It's there. How we get that out in a competitive environment is going to take some clever thinking and some dedicated people and and some bravery and, in all honesty, some resources, some financial resources to get it done. But I think there's a shift to try and get that done at the moment. If we can see changes or see that kind of impacting the space in the next six to 12 months, we'll know that we're on the right track. But totally agree. I think the product's there. How do we get it out there? How do we bolster our brand and, and build some excitement around what we already know is is really exciting? Yeah. Okay. So look, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to ask a completely unscripted question here. Uh-oh. <laughs> What's for you, Sarah? Take you're, my mute off for this. So you're on a desert island. <laughs> and you can take one person with you. Who would it be? No. Sarah? I feel like this is a loaded question. Oh, I would take my dog. He's not a person. I, I would be open to taking Kristen because we get along well. <laughs> I feel like she would get on my nerves sometimes if she was the only person I saw. Mm. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I do agree. That's <laughs> yeah, I mean, it depends how big the island is. I think, um, yeah, if, if I was going to take someone, I'd, I'd probably take someone like Sarah. No, right. you, you feel pressured to say that now. I don't think I've ever heard someone consider how big the island is in a question like this. Before. Yeah, that was weird. <laughs> no, I thought that was great. <laughs> I was like, no, that that would make sense because it's like, yeah, the distance between each other. And like, yeah. I said, can I just send them to the other corner and say, you go yeah. over there for two days and come back when you're ready? Balance is important in all relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's too bad we couldn't film this episode just for Sarah's facial expressions when she reacts to things. It just has a whole other story. Not in a bad way, Sarah. Well, I took it as a compliment. Don't worry. <laughs> Your face is telling me otherwise. <laughs> Okay, guys, look, I really want to thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's been great talking to you. Can't wait to see how the current cohort develops and also can't wait to see how things go with this WNBL season, how the caps go as well. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having us. It's been fun. Thanks, guys. Always a pleasure. Shooting the Breeze can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify and iHeartRadio. Don't forget to subscribe and share the podcast with all your friends.